All right. I know we're working on our 25 thesis. I know. But we're going to take a slight detour to give you a little bit of history, or at least to bring this to light, because someone today who uh, listened online brought this up, asked if we were going to cover this in the course of this study. So I want to at least bring it to everyone's attention, because it is connected to it, and it goes way back into church history. So write down the following word. You ready? Tell me when you're ready. All right. Write down. I'll spell it out for you. M-A-R-R-O-W. M-A-R-R-O-W. Everybody familiar with that word? All right. What is it? Bone marrow, okay, all right. It can, it can refer to something, and, and it's referring to something that would be what? If, if it's in the bone, inside, something deep, okay. The marrow controversy. The marrow controversy. Is everybody familiar with the marrow controversy? All right. I'm going to give you a little bit of information about the marrow controversy, and we will... Because it is connected to the whole law and gospel situation. It's connected to a lot of this. And it had a very important, it had a big significance in church history, right? It divided a lot of Christians. And so, um, and remember what we know about church history, just because you don't know the marrow controversy, does not negate its influence on you, right? Okay, so everybody knows that. All right, so the marrow controversy. The marrow controversy was the controversy over a, what do you think? A 17th century book, which I find very interesting. The Marrow Controversy dealt with a book, and guess what? A lot of the issues we deal with coming to law, gospel, grace, works, deals with what? Deals with a book right here. This book, okay? It's amazing how a book can cause so much controversy, is it not? All right. The Marrow Controversy is a controversy over a 17th century book. Anybody know the name of the book? The Marrow of Modern Divinity. The Marrow of Modern Divinity. The Marrow of Modern Divinity. By Edward Fisher. Edward Fisher. Now, supposedly, he wrote under kind of a pseudonym, and the pseudonym was simply E.F. Now, that title, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, as one article says, may sound strange to modern readers because the use uses the word marrow to refer to the inner or inmost or essential part uh, and the word divinity to refer to a godly life. So the marrow of modern divinity is the essential or the inmost part of living a godly life. That's kind of what it's talking about. If the book was published today, someone may call it the core of Christian living. The book was originally published in two parts. 
part 1, 1645, part 2, 1649. So in our big book of church timeline, we need the Morrow controversy there, okay? So, because it's a pretty important one. Now, the Morrow of Modern Divinity is a fictional four-way dialogue involving a young Christian, an antinomian, a legalist, and a minister. So it's a fictional story with a four-way dialogue between what, kinds, what, what, what people? A young Christian, an antinomian, a legalist, and a minister. And everybody knows antinomian, right? Against the law or no law, right? Okay. So you see where the issues are going to hear? You've got a young Christian trying to figure it out. Right? And he's got the antinomian saying what? There is no law. Don't worry about anything. He's got the legalist saying, do this, do this, do this, do this. And then he's got a minister. Sometimes the minister is probably not of any more help than anything else. Okay. The book attempts to lead the reader down a path that avoids, avoids the extreme of legalism and antinomianism. So trying to avoid those two. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details, but basically when the book was first released, it was not widely read and nobody cared about until what? What happened, you think? Basically, someone said, As you can't read this book and support this book if you're a minister. And then that created controversy. And once you created controversy, guess what happened? Everybody wanted to read it. <laughs> okay, that, all you got to do is make your book cause controversy. And then this caused, guess what happened? And it led to division and splits and arguments and disagreements. I know, shocker, it's never happened in the history of the church. So it's a four-way dialogue. Who are the individuals involved? Young Christian, antinomian, legalist, and a minister. Sounds interesting, doesn't it? Sounds interesting because it probably deals with issues that we all struggle with as Christians, right? You can find two Christians who go to two different churches and may have wildly different standards, will they not? Some will believe everything is wrong. You can't do this, 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 you can't do this. And others act like nothing is wrong. Now, in many cases, both have gone to an extreme, and you've got to try to find the biblical middle. But even trying to find the biblical middle, this is what I want you to see. The biblical middle is not simply trying to determine, because this is where we always make the mistake, of what I can or cannot do. The, the biblical middle is trying to figure out, wait a minute, what are you basing what we can or can't do, and what are you saying? Because here's the issue. If you're saying you can't do this, because if you do this, you prove you're not saved... Now you're following in a very law-based situation, right? So this comes into play with lordship, salvation, law and gospel, grace. Those are the bigger issues. What we tend to focus on is on the behavior. Like when I was a young Christian, it'd be like, basically, this is how I viewed it. They go to a liberal church because they say you can do this stuff. A conservative church will say, you can't do this stuff. I, didn't, I, I probably wouldn't have looked at it from a deeper theological perspective going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What does this have to say about law, gospel, salvation, 
grace. That's the deeper issue. So sometimes when people go to the Morrow controversy, they focus on that. What can I do? And I think we have to look at it from a deeper perspective, more figuring out law and gospel, and then looking at the controversy more from that perspective. Does that, does that make some kind of sense? All right, everybody just say it does, and that's okay. All right. Okay, but we will return to that. We have a lot of history we have to work through, uh, we, but my, my, I want to go through that more. Maybe we'll even look at the book. The book, The Moral Controversy, there's two, just so that you know, there's two editions. There's the original, and then he got in so much trouble, and he was going to be thrown out of his church. I can't remember all the stuff that's going to happen. So he made an annotated version to kind of try to protect himself or try to, Answer, you know, try to like, hey, I'm not really saying what you're saying I'm saying, you know. And so there are two editions out there still in print today. I believe there was controversy over the second, but I don't, don't quote me on that. I, I don't have the, uh, that information in front of me. Some of this, some, what do you mean? It was in two parts, but those two parts basically become one book. And those, book two, those two have, are, are two editions. So they were written in two parts, but basically became one book. And then there were two versions of the one book. Okay, if that makes sense. Is that the best way to explain it? And you can see why, because, I mean, it's going to cause controversy, is it not? I mean, it's going to cause controversy. All right? So we have that. We will return to it. But what I want to see is anyone, anyone online asking about the marrow controversy. Don't get caught up in really fighting between legalism and antinomianism. The, really what you have to fight is to figure out what is the proper way of understanding the key elements of Christian living from a gospel or law perspective. And I think we typically look at Christian living more from a law perspective than a gospel perspective. I think we would all have to agree with that, Yes. Okay, that's what we're going to try to focus on and try to make sense of, okay? Now, everyone ready? Because the goal is to finish these theses, so nobody's going home until we finish it, all right? Set, okay. I hope everyone agrees. All right, let me make sure I'm not missing any comments. All right, here we go. We stopped at what number? Okay, we stopped at the one about venial and mortal, right? That's the one we kind of stopped on? That we do not rightly divide when we, the preacher speaks of certain sins as if they were not of a damnable but a venial nature. Okay. All right. The next one. Everybody ready? I'm not going to go back and review what, any of them because, I mean, we've covered them and I think we've done a pretty good job. All right. Here we go. This would be uh, 20, correct? All right. Here we go. The word of God is not rightly divided when a person's salvation is made to depend on his association with the visible Orthodox Church, and when salvation is denied to every person who errs in any article of faith. Wow. (laughs) 
Well, they're, they're, they're definitely a little bit of that would be going after Catholicism, but I'm saying I, I would argue they're going after Protestants just as strong because Protestants would, would argue the exact same way here, just in an opposite direction. So let's go through this again. Everybody ready? We all know the first part. The word of God is not rightly divided. When a person's salvation is made to depend on his association with the visible Orthodox Church and when salvation is denied to every person who errs in any article of faith. All right, now, obviously this would have a Catholic element uh, to it, but let's, this, let's, this, apply, this should hit close to home for us because in the Protestant world, the same concepts show up, all right? How does it show up in the Protestant world? Well, it would show up, first of all, there's no way you can be saved and not go to church. If you just stop going to church, there's no way you can be saved. Christ loved the church. You don't love the church. Then you don't love what Christ loves. Therefore, you don't love Christ. Therefore, you prove you're not saved. Right, that, that, that would be a, definitely a way that, that would go, that, that they're saying is not a proper division of the Word of God. We, we've all heard that, correct? You've probably even said that. I've probably said that. That there's no way someone who just says, that's it, I'm not going to church. You can't be saved and not go to church. You've got to be associated with a, a church. You have to be. Some of you may, may even still want to believe that. They're saying that's law. How would that be law? Your salvation is based on what church you go to. Salvation is based off church attendance. Salvation is based off what? Everybody knows what salvation is based on, right? Salvation is based on what Christ did. Okay, you scare me when, you, when nobody says anything right there, right? Salvation is based on what Christ did, not on your church attendance. Now someone's got, but your church attendance proves, it, pro- it proves what? Can someone go to church and be lost? Then obviously going doesn't prove that you are. Okay, that if, okay, obviously. So someone can be saved and not go to church. I know that's, that's, that's not going to go over big. That's not going to go over big in internet land. Okay, all right, here we go. All right, and then what's the next part? Now this next one gets really touchy, okay? What's that last part? Okay, now what's the key word there? Any. All right. So this would argue, when they say articles of faith, most likely what art, they would be saying the articles of faith would probably be those articulated in the uh, Apostles' Creed. But um, the issue is, now th- this, one, this one's not easy. All right, I'm just going to be honest with you. This one's not easy. 
Because everyone believes that there's certain things someone must believe, and if they don't believe it, they're not saved. Every church believes that. All right? For example, if you don't believe by salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, we would say that's a false gospel and you are not saved. Therefore, we condemn all Catholics. Catholics would condemn us because we believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And according to the Council of Trent, we are all anathema. Now, we can expand that out, right? If someone rejects the Trinity, are they saved? If someone rejects the deity of Christ. So we do know that clearly there has to be some articles of faith that one would have to believe in order to be saved, right? You would think so, because obviously you've got to believe in Christ. You obviously have to believe in sin. You have to obviously believe in the, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Their argument is, though, that you can't just start marking people off as being saved who just rejects any article of faith. In other words, we would have to determine which articles are required and which ones aren't. And that would probably... Do you think we're going to get an agreement on that? No, we're not. But I guess the most important thing is... Now, this is important. Salvation... I got to word this carefully, so, so make sure I don't sound like a heretic here, but just try to hear me out. Salvation is not determined by one's theological orthodoxy. Salvation is determined by the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that that doesn't mean there is no line of theological orthodoxy that would be required, because there would be some. It just means you're not... Someone doesn't have to have everything perfect. Does that make sense? Right? Okay? Well, well, it appears, though, everyone would have to agree there would be certain things they would have to believe, right? Because if you don't believe it, well, then you are not in Christ, right? You've got to believe about Christ. You've got to believe about sin. There's certain things you would have to believe. Does everybody understand that distinction? Everybody understand the distinction? This would require everything to be perfect. That's never going to happen. Well, I mean, you can convince yourself that you're right, but you don't know. No. Here we just require certain things are right. Now the problem is, oh, I know that would be hard, but it, it wouldn't be easy. But there would have to be. Well, that's a good. I know that's that's the that's the never that's the never-ending dispute here, right? I mean, if you read the Athanasian Creed, you must believe everything in the Athanasian Creed to be saved. I mean. I mean, many, the early church would have said you have to believe the creeds. I mean, like, there's a lot of issues there that would be, it would be difficult. All right? Everybody got that? Questions? I'm not, I'm not limiting to anything. I'm, I'm saying that they're saying that if you, if you, that you, that you're not rightly dividing the word of truth when you hold someone, to, their salvation is based on complete orthodoxy to the articles of faith. I don't know what they're limiting it to. I'm saying that most likely since it's coming from a Lutheran perspective, at least they would probably limit it to the Apostles' Creed. I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying that they're claiming you're not rightly dividing the word of the truth when you claim someone's salvation is based on their orthodoxy to the articles of faith. 
all articles of faith. That's the key word, all. I'm saying in reality, there's got to be some, or anybody would be saved, right? I mean, obviously, you've got to believe in Jesus. You've got to believe in Jesus. You've got be- to believe some. All right. Any other questions? Now, the next one is the one we may just leave off, but I will at least read it because we can at least make sure that all of you at least are familiar with this theological problem. All right, everybody ready? Now, we know how it's going to start. Now, you don't have to write this down. Just listen. The word of God is not really divided when men are taught that the sacraments produce effects that is by the mere outward performance of a sacramental act. Now, what they're saying is you're not rightly dividing the word of truth if you go through the motions of a sacrament and you believe that that going through the motion produces some kind of means of grace. Now, the problem with this is they would, they would argue that the sacraments do produce a means of grace, okay, because they're coming from a Lutheran perspective. So let's make sure we ever understand. And I, it's, it's, it blows my mind how sometimes Protestants will do this. I, friends in Nebraska were using the word sacraments, and I'm like, y'all believe in sacraments? What in the world? Okay, and then, then I said, what? define what a sacrament is, and I'm like, that's not a sacrament. What's happening here? Okay, but let me help you. A sacrament is typically defined as what? Go. Okay. It's a it's an action or a, or you could call it a visible means of grace. A visible see you remember from your Lutheran days, right? A visible means of grace. We taught we learned good theology as Lutherans, okay? Right? In other words, an act. What would, be, what would be the two main sacraments in the Lutheran church? Baptism and Lord's Supper. All right, so baptism is a visible means of grace. So you take a baby in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what happens? Sin is gone. A regenerate Christian. Boom. You take the Lord's Supper. What happens in the Lord's Supper? What happens in the Lord's Supper in a sacramental church? It's a visible means of grace. Forgiveness of sins. Your sins are forgiven. You receive grace. They're saying that it's wrong to say just going through the mere action will produce it. You have, there has to be faith associated with it, and there's kind of like a formula that has to be present. We would say... I would argue, now, here, now, why do you think they can say that and say that that's not a work? God is the one giving the grace through it. It's a work of God. It's not a work of man. So they, say, they can say you can still believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone because of Christ alone in a sacramental system because the sacraments are not a work of man. It's a work of God. And they say the best picture of that is the baby. Is the baby doing anything? Does the baby know anything? No, but boom, the baby is saved in it and through it and by it because it's a work of God. So that sounds good, doesn't it? We have a problem because we see the sacraments as a work of man. So therefore, we would argue that it's not rightly, you're not rightly dividing the word of truth when you teach that the sacraments are a means of grace. 
we would then reject it that way. So the question is, is a sacrament a means of grace? Is it a work of God or is it a work of man? Now, the problem is, if you say it's a work of God, how can then you then come along and say, but, 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 you have to make sure you do this in order for it to work. Well, wait a minute. The baby doesn't do anything and it works. And if that's the case, then all we would need to do is open a daycare for free and everyone who brings their baby through the door, sprinkle, 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 sprinkle. Who cares about asking permission? We're just sprinkling kids all over the place because they'd all be saved. Well, yeah, well, well, that's, that's a whole other major problem in Lutheranism. Then they say you can lose your salvation. Do, say that again. Right. Well, in Lutheranism, you can lose your salvation. So then the kid, yeah. So then the kid grows up and can lose their salvation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then it becomes a it becomes. You see how that becomes a mess? Because then, like, wait a minute, I thought you were saved by grace alone. It it, it whole falls apart. Like this, the Lutheranism sounds good until you realize. Well, wait a minute. So it's a it's a work of God, but it's a temporary work of God that messed up by whom? Us. Well, wait a minute. That seems to say the gospel now becomes a matter. This is what I want you to see. I don't care if you're Baptist. I don't care if you're Lutheran. I don't care if you're Catholic. Everyone struggles with what is the way to figure this out. Because everyone is scared, because everyone knows that they've baptized babies in a Lutheran church. And guess what happens when the kid's 18? I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the church. I hate my parents. I hate everything. I'm going to go drink. I'm going to do this. Okay, well, obviously they lost their salvation. Everyone's got to have an answer for those things, correct? So uh, we would, we, what we would say, if we want to write that one down, is you do not rightly divide the word of truth when you teach that sacraments are a means of grace. There you go. We would reject that. Because we see the sacraments as a work of whom? Oh, wait. We? Yeah, we. Well, we don't see sacraments as a work of man. Yeah, we see sacraments as a work of man, not a work of God. Therefore, they can't be a means of grace. Does, does that make sense? Everybody with me here? Okay, good. I want to make sure we're on the same page here. Yeah, we don't even call them sacraments, but I'm saying any, it's not rightly dividing the word of truth when you teach that sacraments are a means of grace. Yeah, we wouldn't use the word sacraments. That's how come I'm blown away when I hear someone refer to baptism or the Lord's Supper. They're a Protestant and they refer to it as a sacrament. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's an ordinance. Everybody understand the difference between an ordinance and a sacrament? Ordinance is something we believe God has told us to do, right? To to, is an act of obedience, something to remember. So we're remembering something. We're symbolizing something, right? No, but once you add grace into it, now, wait a minute, either it's I'm doing it to get the grace, like then it becomes a whole issue, all right? Does that make everybody there? Okay, good, all right. So far, so good? All right, that brings us to what number? 22, everybody Ready? The word of God is not rightly divided. Everybody got that? When a false 
distinction when you got it just say something is made between a person's being awakened And his being converted. We'll just go with the first part first. There's a second part here. So let's go through that one again. The word of God is not rightly divided when a false distinction is made between a person being awakened and being converted. Moreover, when a person's inability to believe is mistaken for his not being permitted to believe. All right, we'll go through this one more time. Everybody ready? You can read along with me or you can tell me what you have written down. Here we go. The word of God is not rightly divided when a false distinction is made between a person's being awakened and his being converted. Moreover, when a person's inability to believe is mistaken for his not being permitted to believe. The last one makes perfect sense. First one's a little bit confusing, but we'll try to make sure we understand it. All right, or at least in part, or at least we'll go with what we think it's saying. All right. So they say the word of God is not rightly divided when a when what happens? A false distinction is made. A false distinction is made between two concepts. Awakened and converted. They're like, there should not be a distinction between awakened and converted. All right? I, I don't know exactly what they're going after there, right? I don't know if they're going like ordus salutis, right? The order of salvation, right? I don't know exactly how the, where, where that false distinction is falling into. I'm assuming... When we get to the thesis, they will explain. We could look it up right now, but I don't want, I want to finish this, so we can't because the next one is super, super long. So we don't have a lot of time to work on this. But everybody at least understands what they're trying to say. Whether we understand exactly what it means, we understand at least what it says, right? They're saying, don't make that distinction. Okay? And then in the second place, or the next thing? Now, this one we understand, all of us should understand this. We, we're in a Reformed, a Reformed church, holds the London Baptist Confession of Faith. We understand this one, right? Do, we all believe a person has an inability to believe, right? Okay, yes. everybody believes that. Why do we have an inability to believe? We're dead in trespasses and sins. What does it mean that you're not permitted to believe? This almost carries the idea of what? We talked about it in our study in Romans. Double predestination. What's another word for it? 
reprobation. Remember that? Okay, basically where God is like, like, it, like if you carry the idea, you're not rightly dividing the word of truth, that there's Bobby, he's like, I want to believe, I want to believe. And God's like, sorry, you cannot believe, but I want to. You're not one of the chosen, but I want to. Sorry, you can't. That's not the way it works, right? Nobody wants to believe. No one seeketh after God. No, not one. Well, yeah, we'll have to understand how that, what, what distinction they're making between awakened and converted, right? We have to understand that distinction. But we definitely understand the second part, right? I wonder if it's going kind of more the idea with prevenient grace that um, Arminians kind of teach that God gives everyone a prevenient grace so that you have the ability to believe. But we, we don't, obviously, we don't believe that because nobody can until God gives you the faith. So I, maybe that's the direction they're going, but we'll have to see. All right. Now, what number are we on next? Wow, this one's long. Okay. Here we go. Everybody thinking caps on? Hey, if, we, if you get lost, let me know. All right. But this one's just going to take about 15 minutes just for us to write this thing out because it's a book. All right. Here we go. We all know how it starts. The word of God is not rightly divided. When, very good, that's the next word, when an attempt is made by means of the demands or the threats Or the promises of the law. I'll go through that again. The word of God is not rightly divided when an attempt is made by means of the demands or the threats or the promises of the law. Has everybody got there? Everybody stop with the word law? All right, next two words. To induce... The unregenerate to put away their sins and engage good works and thus become godly. That's just the first part. No, thus become godly. If you're going to put away all your bad. And... Oh, okay. Oh, gotcha. Okay, gotcha. Okay, understand. Understand. Everybody got that? On the other hand, when an endeavor. Is made. I haven't been giving you the punctuation, but after is made, there's a comma. By means of the commands of the law, 
rather than by the admonitions of the gospel to urge the regenerate. Okay. All right. All right. Okay, I'm going to go back to, I'm going to go back to the, the, the second one, all right? On the other hand, when an endeavor is made by means of the commands of the law, rather than by the admonitions of the gospel to urge the regenerate, the regenerate to do good. Oh, this one is... This one is deep, deep, deep. This is good stuff. This one, we could camp out for a year on this one. This one is like so good. This is like a full meal. All right, I'm sorry. Is that the end of it after to do good? Yeah, that's it. That's it. Okay, now, thanking caps on. Okay, everybody, everybody paying attention? All right, we have two groups of people here. Here's group number one. They are the unregenerate. Bobby, you're the unregenerate. Bobby's the unregenerate. Okay, everyone on this side is the regenerate. All right, unregenerate, regenerate. Now, here's, I'm going to deal with the unregenerate. According to that statement, what is not, what am I not, if I do this, I'm doing it incorrectly. What am I to do that would, what, if I, what would be the way of not rightly dividing the word of truth? If I go to Bobby, he's unregenerate, and I start telling him what? would be the wrong way to do it, according to that. What would be the wrong way? No, well, when I go to him and I tell him, Bobby's unregenerate, and I tell him do this. Bobby, don't get drunk. Bobby, don't do this. Bobby, don't. And I give him law so that he'll stop doing things and supposedly become a... What does it say? Become godly. Do I? Do I? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm giving him the law to live a moral life. Christians have, look, Protestants have been doing this forever. We yell and scream at people. Get rid of that music. Don't do this. Don't do this. Stop being bad. Don't do this. Don't do this. We want everyone to follow our rules. But you don't make people godly by giving them the law. What does the unregenerate need? What's the proper use of the law to the unregenerate? To show them their sin. Then what does he need? Does he need to keep the law? No. What does he need? The gospel. Right, he needs to know the law to see how far short he falls short of it. I don't give him the law to make him do it. I don't give him the law. The law, we want to use the law to purify America. We want to use the law to make America great again. We want to use the law to make everyone act like Christians. That is garbage. The law is to show us how far we have fallen short of it. And then what do we need? They need the gospel. I don't need a homosexual to stop their homosexuality. I need them to see that their sexuality is a sin so that they'll come to Christ. This is giant. You don't even understand how important this one is. Now, 
whether even before I ever understood the distinction between law and gospel, this is a thing I have preached over and over and over. Stop trying to make everyone live like a Christian. What do I always say? We don't try to make the unregenerate live like a Christian. I don't care if Target says Merry Christmas. I don't care if they only sell holiday trees. I don't care. My job is not to make Target live like Christians. The Protestant world has completely abandoned this concept. This is what we try to do. Christians are all mad because FX and Disney has the, the, the little new animated show for adults where they have the, basically the son or the child of the Antichrist. And they're like, oh, this is horrible. We've got to ban it. We've got to get rid of it. We've got to make FX and Disney get rid of the show. Just stop. It's not your job to tell them how to live. What difference does it make if Disney... We only want Disney to make shows that we like. Why? What should I expect unregenerate people to do? To live like the unregenerate. Because you know what Christians live like? Oh, yeah. (laughs) We're not much different, right? They need the law. So what is the law for to the unregenerate? This is the key I want you to get. To see their sin, to go to Christ. All right? Now, so... What should I do to Bobby? I only give him the law to see his sin. I don't give him the law to try to tell him how to live. And you'll see Christians do this in the workplace. Hey, 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 don't be cussing around me. Hey, don't, don't talk, cuss like, don't talk like that. Who are you? What, you want them to live like a, why are you telling them what to do? Now, if you want to, if you want to use their foul language in order to show them their sin, that's one thing. But it's not to try to get them to stop sinning. Christians are bizarre that way. We want everyone to live like us. You know why we want everyone to live like us? We don't care about Bobby's salvation. We just want to feel comfortable around Bobby. It's about our comfort. It's not about Bobby's salvation. Well, get over yourself. Hey, Christians, get over yourself. Okay, nobody liked that. Okay, all right. Now, here's this side. This is the regenerate side. Now, according to this, what am I not supposed to do to them? Everybody, does everybody agree with that? Well, I'm, I'm asking. So when it comes to the, them, what am I not trying to use to get them to do good? The law, but the admonitions of the gospel. Now, what's the difference between the admonitions of the gospel and the law? What do you think the difference is there? This, this, now, if everyone doesn't understand this one, I can see why, because we're probably not used to this distinction. So I, I, I can understand where th- everyone here may go, okay, I don't understand what's going on here. What do you think in your mind the difference is? Well, let's go with the most obvious. Hey, hey, hey! Better start submitting to your husbands, because if you don't, you act like you're not saved, you're probably not even saved. Now I'm using the law to try to get them to do the right thing. Where the admonition of the gospel would be that he who saved you by grace calls you to live this way for his honor and for his glory. It's not in order to prove you're saved or to demonstrate you're saved or anything. It's just, it's out of love and gratitude for what Christ has done. 
It's an admonition. What's the difference between an admonition? Look up the definition for the word admonition. Well, look, just, just use Google. Just use Google. I don't think the Bible dictionary will. It may have something for admonition, but just use Google. Ask Siri. Ask Alexa. Ask whoever you got, okay? Call a friend. I don't care. Admonition. Let's see what we got. Okay, that's gentle it. Or okay, a gently friendly reproof. In other words, my admonition to you is not based on whether you're going to be saved, not saved, prove saved. It has nothing to do with your salvation. It would be do, the one who saved you calls you to do this. It's a gospel-based instead of a law-based approach. Does that make sense? That wouldn't be a challenge to all of us, would it not? Yes, it would. All right, now what number are we on? 24, the next two are short, so we should go quick. So everybody knows how number 24 begins, right? The word of God is not rightly divided. What's the word, Bobby? When, when. <laughs> okay. Unforgiven sin against the Holy Ghost is described in a manner as if it could not be forgiven because of its magnitude. The word of God is not rightly divided when the unforgiven sin against the Holy Ghost is described in a manner as if it could not be forgiven because of its magnitude. Now, what do you think they're referring to here? Super controversial subject. Christians have struggled with it forever. What do you think it's referring to? Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. All right. And they're saying you're not rightly dividing the word of truth when you, when you say that it can never be forgiven. I know the scripture seems to imply it can never be forgiven, but now it comes down to what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They say, they would argue that, 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 that the law would say you can never be forgiven of it. And the reason you can never be forgiven of it is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would be to reject whom? Christ. But under the gospel, it can be forgiven because you would be receiving Christ and in Christ, all sins are forgiven. So it really comes down to how do we understand what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. So that's all really a different argument. But just what they want you to see is this. Outside of Christ, how many sins are forgiven? None. No matter how good you are, no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you go to church, no matter what you do. In Christ, how many sins are forgiven? You ready for this? No matter what you do, no matter how much you read, no matter how much you go to church, all your sins are forgiven. So no, 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 we don't like that part, but that's the way it works. Outside of Christ, how many sins are forgiven? None. Not, and not, no matter what you do, no matter what you do, it can't change that. 
in Christ, all your sins are forgiven. All, no matter what you do, okay? No matter what you do, they're forgiven because of Christ. Right, exactly. That's the point they're trying to drive home. We'll say, well, your sins are forgiven, but if you don't do this and this and this and this and this and this, you don't prove that your sins are forgiven. Okay, so I got to work to me. No, 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 you don't have to work. But if I don't work, you're telling me my sins are not forgiven. So, (laughs) all right, then last but not least, the word of God is not rightly divided when the person teaching it does not allow the gospel to have a general predominance in his teaching. The word of God is not rightly divided when the person teaching it, in other words, teaching the word of God, does not allow the gospel to have a general what? Predominance in his teaching. Does not allow the gospel to have a general predominance in his teaching. Now, and law. But the gospel should have a predominance. Now, you know my feelings on this. It's the, it's the text has it. that Yeah, I, I'm not a fan of, wait, wait, wait. This text seems to be like law, 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 law. And so I'm just, I get through it really quick and then go, okay, guys, let's focus on the gospel. Right? That the... T- because my thing is, if the text is, if whatever text we're looking at today, this is the way, I, and I know this is kind of lectionary based. Now, why, in the Lutheran camp, why, why does it work a little bit easier in the Lutheran camp? They use a lectionary. They use a lectionary, right? So guess what? You're going to have an Old Testament reading that may be predominantly, and you're going to have New Testament that may be predominantly, so therefore it works. Okay. Now, if I'm doing lectionary preaching where I have readings that have law and gospel, that may make it easy. But if I'm not doing a lectionary reading, then what am I going to base it on? I'm going to base it on what the text says. My, my job in preaching, to me, is not give me the template and say, you've got to give them law and gospel. No, my job is to preach what the text is and to make you figure out the text and to struggle with the text and ask the questions about the text and understand the text and try to, oh, we got to figure out the text. Like, that, that to me is the difference between sermons, right? I hate sermons. To everybody wants a sermon. A sermon is a speech where you follow your little rules, right? You got to have your nice little introduction. <laughs> make everyone laugh. <laughs> Right? Uh, make it all nice and, re- and relatable. Make sure you drop your three points, right? Boom, boom. And don't go too in depth, right? We, we got to get through, you know, 1 Corinthians in six months or whatever nonsense they do, right? And then you got to make sure you end with some kind of very, you know, memorable conclusion. Well, all of that, and or you got to make sure you give them a little bit of law and you give them a little bit of gospel. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the text and I, we're going to just struggle with the text. We're just going to struggle with the text. And, and guess what? Every text is what? 
Every text is God's word, but every text is different. Every text is unique. Every text requires different problems and different issues. I don't like telling me, this is the way you preach. Just stop that. What what should determine how I preach is not some man-made template that all Christians supposedly want when they go to church. Give me my nice little sermon. Okay, yeah, guess what? You know how many nice little sermons have been preached in 2,000 years of church history? A bazillion. Guess where we are in 2022? Christians are biblically illiterate, theologically illiterate. Why? Their little sermons don't work. So sick of hearing that. I want the little sermon. I, want the, I just want it to be nice and simple. Well, then go somewhere else, okay? So sick of that. Because I got the proof to show that it doesn't work. The church has been given nice little sermons forever, and, and nobody knows anything. You ask a basic question. I don't know. 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 Well, maybe if we actually study the text. So when the text is law-based, what do I give you? Law. When the gospel is there, gospel. That's how I think it should be done. And you say, well, someone showing up to church on a, a given Sunday may be confused. Can any pastor try to fix every confusion in one sermon? The anticipation should be keep coming. <laughs> Come back. We all know how frustrating it is if someone is not here for like three weeks and then they come in and they're like, well, what about this and what about this? You missed the last three weeks. I don't have time to argue with you today. Could you wait? You know, could you go back and listen? Because it's, it's impossible. Because if I do that, then every sermon is what? A one-hour review of the previous sermon. <laughs> so, and I already do enough review, but even that's hard enough, right? It's like there's some point you can't. So if I, if I, we would never be able to get into the text. I have to go, ooh, ooh, there's a lot of law there. Okay, now, because in many cases, I have to leave the text to get to the, if the gospel's not there, I, I just, I reject that outright. I know that Reformed people are going to be listening. That's not New Testament preaching. That's not New Testament preaching. That's not New Testament preaching. Okay. All right. Says, would oh, say that? Thank you. Says who? Who came up with that rule? I'm going to preach what's here. It makes sense to preach what the text is. That makes sense. All right, there's the 25. Any questions about the 25? My favorite, if you did not detect, was number 23. That one I think is absolutely amazing. Because it talks about how to properly deal with people from a law perspective versus a gospel perspective. And I think it, it destroys the way Christians act in trying to give the law to people. You'll see, just, just stay on social media or just read a news article. Like it'll be a news article about something and someone will be quoting scripture. You're all going to be judged. You're all going to... What do you... You just want to condemn people based off the law. You're not even bringing the gospel here. Right? You're just, you, you want homosexuals just to stop being homosexuals because it makes you feel more comfortable. What... That, no, I don't need them to change their life. I need them to have Christ. And then they'll say, but if they get Christ, they'll change their life. And you've changed your life. So you, you're, well, I, it's just always so funny when it comes to the homosexual thing. Is like, well, heterosexuals don't change their lives. They still struggle with heterosexual sexuality. So why should the homosexual not be able to st- still struggle with it? The issue is there should be a struggle. 
right? I think to me, the biggest issue, people say, well, where, how does it work under gospel versus law? This is where I think gospel is. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the thing, there's a, I don't want to do something and I want, the don't and the want, not wanting to is present. There's a struggle because you've changed your mind about it. But guess what? Just because the, the desire is there, the nature is still present. And so you end up doing what you don't want to do and you and you end up not doing want to do because that's the reality of it. All right, any questions? All right, I almost want to like, let's go to number one and let's start going through it. But okay, we got, we got the 25. We finished it. That's all I care about today. All right, there we go. All right, we'll stop right there. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. I hope some of this has been eye-opening for all of us. Hopefully it's been extremely challenging. And hopefully as we work through these 25, we come face-to-face with some very important concepts that will continue to change our life and help us truly understand the key, the core, to living out the Christian life from a gospel perspective versus a law perspective. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...